No. Roll a constitution save. <laughs> Why the hell would you think that? Good morning, everyone. This is House of Bards. Or maybe it's good evening, but welcome anywhere to House of Bards. It might be good afternoon. Maybe you're listening to this at 3am. We're (laughs) not going to judge you if you are. Yeah, it's fine. This is House of Bards. This is a podcast about role-playing games, shared narrative, and all that good stuff. Uh, My name is Beth, and I'm glad birds have tongues. And this is Alex, and he's as pure as the driven snow. I'm actually uncomfortable with that descriptor, please. (laughs) This is Alec. This is Alec. Having run into, like, that discussion last week about different cultures and their, you know, (laughs) advancement in technology, I don't really need to be reminded of how white I am. (laughs) That's true. Uh, I get a reminder every time I put foundation on. This is Alex, and he is a gentle bear. Okay. We'll we'll go with that. We'll go with that one. So... You may have noticed that the episode this week is called the QCon 22 Experiment. We're going to do something a little different this week. Um, normally, this is you know what, what we have done up until now, and what we will continue to do after this, except for some, you know, in isolated cases where I'm sure there will be extenuating circumstances, is we will take a topic, a very general topic, and talk about it and how it applies to shared narrative in role-playing games. Um, But this week, uh, I want to talk to you all about the QCon 22 experiment, which I ran at QCon 22 last weekend. So perhaps some background for people who don't know what I'm talking about. As I've mentioned before in the podcast, I live in the city of Belfast, which is the capital of the nation of Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom capital by virtue of being very slightly larger than all of the other villages in Northern Ireland and having a post office. (laughs) But I go to Queen's University here. I study computer science and I'm currently on my placement year. Not that that's particularly relevant aside from the fact that uh, because I used to work up on the Titanic quarter, I have probably cycled right past multiple episodes of Game of Thrones being filmed. Every year, uh, the Gaming Society at Queen's University Belfast Students' Union Uh, called QUB Dragon Slayers, hosts a convention that they call QCon. And the one this year, which is uh, this weekend just passed, we're recording on Wednesday the 24th of June. Mm -hmm. So the uh, the convention ran from the 19th to the 21st. Yes, okay. Um, And this was the very first time that I had gone to QCon with the intention of DMing D&D there because there is a there is a role-playing game section you know um, it's perhaps not as large as it has been in previous years you know there's um, all sorts of things going on at QCon there's a lot of cosplay they show anime there's a lot of magic that gets played they even have like uh, a number of tournaments in different formats there's a lot of um, video games played both competitive and casual mm-hmm. um, and there's generally been a space where just you can get a board game and you can all play. And it's excellent, of course, because you have the whole day. You can play that really, really long board game that otherwise you would never play because mm-hmm. who would actually make a board game that takes that long? Why would you do that? 
and I've been introduced to some really cool games through QCon, but but this year I was like, no, um, they're always short of DMs for RPGs, so I'm going to run a game. But I didn't just want to run a game, because to do that I could have just picked a like pre-published scenario, or even just a snippet of my own work to play again for people. QCon is excellent for esoteric off-the-wall stuff, as well as introducing beginners to the game. So I thought I should do something a bit weird. So the QCon 22 experiment involved um, a heist, multiple warring factions, and kind of, sort of, not really time travel shenanigans. It was, it was kind of exciting. So what I ended up intending to do is I took a section of a scenario that I had previously run called the City Port of Tarn, which Beth has played. And I have, I have. Um, this is the Garden Park section, I believe. Yes, it is in fact the section where the player characters have to go and infiltrate a garden party being put on by a wealthy uh, nobleman and his wife. Mm. And it is, I mean, it's. it was basically like the most fun I've had in a while. <laughs> it is like one of the greatest scenarios ever written and i'm putting that out there um are you the, the whole thing or the garden party section specifically? the garden party section specifically that is you know i mean the, obviously you've got other good bits obviously i thought so yeah. um you see different different parts of them depending on who you're working for yeah uh i wonder exactly how much background we really need from the scenario the players obviously didn't have it but it might help listeners to to have it so the city port of tarn is about the city port of Tarn, which is the capital of the country of Meslin in Dornsomber. It is also where roughly 70 to 80% of the population of Meslin live, because Meslin is basically a giant marsh, and there's not a huge number of settlements out there where people would live. So it's very, very crowded, but it also has quite a lot of, of wealth piled up on it in what might be considered a... a, a undesirable location but which has been made at least in the nobles case to look very nice and have a lot of luxuries so think like colonial louisiana but medieval dang yeah that's 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 a good word for it yeah that's that's the kind of thing we're talking about so there are at least two two um factions that the pcs can work for Mm. and the whole plot of the scenario is centered around this conflict between the Temple of Linalus, which is a temple in Tarn devoted to Linalus, the god of law and order, and the Temple of Vesisark, which is a temple devoted to Vesisark, the goddess of chaos and independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we ended up working for Vesisark, but I know the... The very but... first group I ran this with, yeah, uh, but... they, they worked for Linalus. But yeah. yes, you, you, you folks worked for Vesisark, and indeed... It's kind of the Lionelesian group that drives the plot along, which is why um, that's like the default way to play. And if you play the Vesisark uh, plotline, then there is a group of NPCs who make up the Lionelesian party who will be doing all of the things that you know that they have to do in order to make the, the plot move on while you try and stop them. Yeah. So, what has a garden party got to do with all of this? Well, uh, I think which mission it is depends on where you are in each plotline, but at a certain point you will be told that there, that one of the Athtone family, who are a very wealthy noble family, ha, is suspected of maintaining an illegal shrine to Vesisark. Because the thing about Vesisark is that there is a legitimate temple of Vesisark, but they're very tightly regulated. And there's a cult 
to Vesasag that has, you know, no holds barred, but they're illegal, obviously. And the, th- the thing is, the temple doesn't openly support the cult's activities, but secretly they don't want the Line Elysians to get, uh, to get a handle on, on the cult's, like, whereabouts or be able to control them. Yeah, they don't, you know, like, I, I suppose if you're running a temple, you want that temple to stay open and stay relatively free of, like... It's mainly because they're, they're opposing primal forces. Like, yeah. even though the Temple of Vesasark has to pay attention to, like, what the law says they can and can't do, yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily that they want the cult to succeed. It's yeah. that they don't want the cult's failure to come at the hands of the Lionelysians because they yeah. are scared of what the Lionelysians might end up doing if they gain too much control. And... Quite rightfully, uh, here's a spoiler for the end of the scenario, the Temple of Linalus are basically Nazis. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they were, yeah. And they, um, if, if you do their plotline, then they will eventually trick you into assassinating the president. Oh, yeah, that was, so that was that great when we were like, power. oh my god, the, when we were all like, I forget what we were doing, I think we were like standing around. You were trying to like get uh, a blacksmith to do something and then like the bell rang and the I know, we were like, all... oh no the president's been murdered yeah we were like wait what of course, it's even worse if you do the line Elysian plot line because then like it's you murdering the president yeah 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 but you don't know he's the president at the time you're just yeah. told to go and murder him I, th- I think like partly we were like good we didn't get to kill the president because like the president's actually kind of a nice guy he I, just gets I'm sure he is. his parliament a lot yeah we're just i mean our group is very anti-establishment, to be honest, isn't it, really, Alex? <laughs> um, you kind of are. This is, this is very true. We are, um, we are punks of the Middle Ages, um, and we fight the law. Sometimes the law wins. Most of the time, we have, yeah. But anyway. Anyway, none of this is is relevant to yeah. the way that the the component of the scenario was done in the Qgon Twenty Two experiment. No. So I have this idea that because there were these two opposing factions, and also a third faction, there is a thieves' guild in Tarn called the Green Hawk, who basically want nothing to do with the cosmic battle. Yeah. Um, and who just want to like rob things. Yeah, as, as thieves like to do. Yes, there is a a famous, I would say famous, you know, there's there's a prominent character from the Green Hawk who will appear somewhere in the scenario for each group called. Her name is Arthani. It's it's much longer than Arthani. It was generated by a tool, and that's why I found it so amusing. Uh, <laughs> Arthani is a, Arthani is a, is a halfling who is found and rescued at a certain point during the garden party if you are Lionelysian, and found in a completely different place if you're Vesasasian. Yeah. Um, but so I go, okay, so I'm going to run the same scenario three times. Each time, I'm going to run it from the perspective of a different faction, so Lionelysians first, Vesasasians second, and the Greenhawk third. And each time I run it, I'm going to write down what each member of the group does. And then I'm going to run the three games in the same space, at the same time, in the same instance. So the second group will encounter NPCs of the first group's characters attempting to accomplish their task that they completed during the first, uh, the first session. And so, so the third group will encounter the first and second groups as modified by the second group's acts. Mm. It was an ambitious experiment. I'm not sure I realised that at the time. Um, when I first thought of it, I won't deny that it seemed complicated, but I thought, you know, I can probably pull this off. Yeah. Um, it, it's just three sessions. And, like, obviously the, the Green Hawk, they're not really involved in, in anything, so... 
for them mainly it's going to be like the stuff's going on in the background they're not going to be directly involved it's just going to sort of be happening while they're trying to rob the place <laughs> yeah but then somebody said to me well what happens if if the players interfere with the actions of a previous group such that they prevent something from happening and do you know i hadn't thought about that at all which is weird because two of the groups have exactly opposing goals like the second group's entire purpose is to prevent the first group's success but yeah anyway so so i was like okay so the first session the temple of Lionel, the mercenaries hired by the temple of Lionelus will try and infiltrate this garden party held by the Athtones, um, using what, whichever means that they choose. I will have some tools available to them, and they will try and find the illegal shrine to Vesasark that has been constructed in the house, if it exists, and their mission is to either destroy it or to report its location back to their employers at the temple. That's what they have to do. Like, there's no funny business in the first session, obviously, because we don't have any data, so they just have to play the session as normal. And I told the players this at the start because I, it felt kind of unfair for them not to know that their session was, like, basically the most important but the least interesting. <laughs> so I let them know, and I, I said, you know, um, this is still important because I need to get, like, the first session down so that there's actually data for the subsequent sessions. And I think the scenario itself is still pretty good and they they all seemed happy with that there were um i believe two people in that session who had never played D&D before i'm pretty sure that nobody in that session had played fifth edition before so that was interesting mm-hmm. and then the uh the second session obviously that's um that was interesting it was interesting to see what they changed what they prevented from happening that sort of thing and then the third session everything went to shit <laughs> It was amazing. And so, with that in mind, I thought that I should read my account of how everything went down in the true timeline, the Greenhawk timeline, where everything is compounded upon itself. Because obviously, I had to try and get a sense of the characters, not just of like the actual characters, but also of the players, so that I would know roughly how they would play their characters. Yeah if faced with an inability to accomplish the task that they would otherwise have done, and that, in fact, they did otherwise do. Yeah. Which was a challenge, uh, because you have to remember, then I'm, I'm remembering 12 characters. Mm. I think... And it wasn't even 12, because, of course, I've got a load of NPCs, and by the third session, three of those characters are entering under assumed names. Yeah. Um, shall we, just for the sake of, of this... If you quickly name off the names of all of the characters and we sort of establish for the listeners who's okay. who. Okay. Um, if I have the notes relevant to that here. Okay. Because I did make lists at the beginning of each session as to what the names of all the characters were. Yeah. Now, I don't tend to benefit from lists like this very much. Uh, and I know that there will be people listening who probably don't either. That's fine. Um you know, I will eventually, like, actually go over... Um, I, I will read out all the names at the start just for the curious, but I will also, like, if somebody turns out to be important later, I will mention, like, you know, who, who, who they are and what they did previously mm. if they haven't done anything in a while. Yeah. Okay, I have two lists. Where's the third one? Oh, right, the third one is still in the book. Here we go. So, the very first group... Um, 
consisted of six people. Uh, D&D 5th edition is still incredibly popular at QCon, which means that all three of my sessions were completely booked. So I had <laughs> six, six characters for each session. Um, so the first session included Cora uh, the Bard. Cora's uh, player had never played D&D before, and I thought that she carried it off very well. It was a memorable character that I was able to do a lot of stuff with, which was good because a lot of stuff happened to her subsequently. <laughs> um, and Cora was, I believe, a half-elf. Yes, I know she was a half-elf because I made the pre-gen. And, wow, by the way, in 5th edition, half-elf bards are OP as shit. We are absolutely OP as shit. Um, I say that as a half-elf bard. Uh, yeah. Not in real life, obviously. If I was a, If I was a half-elf bard in real life, the adventures I'd have. Um, Who but says yeah, you're not? They, I've they, listened to you play the ukulele. Yeah. They are <laughs> um, like, we get a lot of skills, and we can basically carry the team through. You get a lot checks. of, like, completely unrestricted skills, by the way. Both oh, the yeah. Half-Elf and the Bard offer a number larger than two of any skill proficiency you like. Yeah. Um... And then with expertise you get to double two of them. Yeah, and right. Jack of All Trades allows you to add your uh, half your proficiency bonus to any skill check whatsoever that you don't already have your proficiency bonus on. And then don't forget the proficiencies your background gives you as well, which is... Well, we weren't playing with backgrounds, but yes, that uh, would yeah. be even more yeah. OP. If, yeah, so like, you know, I think I've got... I forget at this point how many I've got, but I've got a lot. I think I've got more than six... I forgot how many I told you, but I've got more than six profici- skill skill proficiencies. It's, I'm pretty it's, sure. It's incredible. It is. Anyway, so the second uh, player from the first group was Thrawn, who was a Dragonborn Barbarian. He was a black Dragonborn, for those who are interested. So his, his breath weapon was poison, I believe, or acid or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, he... Thrawn is generally not important. There is one important thing that he does, and he does it in all three timelines. So <laughs> I would ask you... I, I will remind you who he is when he comes up. Uh, Sarek. Sarek is an elf rogue. Sarek is very important to the first game and to subsequent games. Like, Sarek, I believe, did the most to advance the plot of the first group, so he gets interfered with a lot by subsequent groups. Uh, there is Dragax, the human fighter. Dragax, not generally important, save for one thing that he does, which is pretty evident from the start. Mm-hmm. Grisbane, who is the dwarf cleric, and Johnson, who is a human ranger. I would say Johnson is probably more important than Grisbane for the purposes of this story. Mm-hmm. I'm being kind of mean, by the way. Like, I, when I say important, I don't mean that they were like more important members of the of the group, I just mean mm-hmm. that their actions were more important to the timeline, which was not expertly kept, and I will talk about things that I did wrong later, because there are like things that didn't go out as well as I'd hoped. So, Johnson is generally only relevant in relation to Sarek. That's that's probably... If you imagine them as like a um, a, a gruesome twosome, <laughs> if you like, with Sarek taking the lead, uh, that's, that's probably going to help. Right. The second group... Uh, there was a wizard called Leon. A wizard? Amazing. Yep. Uh, there was a bard who I believe was an elf called Tell. There was a druid called Iwana. <laughs> Iwana? Yep. There was a dwarf fighter called Olaf. There was a ranger called Steve. And <laughs> there was a cleric of Asherod called Nilpek. You're going too quick, ah! Well, the thing about these characters yeah. is, of them, um, 
Leon is kind of important. Yeah. Uh, Tell is not himself important, but does an important thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iwana is there for a lot of important stuff happening, but isn't generally like hugely relevant. Honestly, a lot of these characters tend to turn up while important things are happening. Yeah. But don't they? They work together as a pretty like cohesive team, so it's difficult to pick out one who did more than the others. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. I suppose you could say that that Olaf just generally like stood around and prevented people from escaping. Fantastic. Um, Steve's player had never played before in this group. That much I do know. Uh, it... Also, Nilpex player knew people from the first group, and that really threw a spanner in the works. If you're oh. going to do the QCon experiment like yourself, try make sure find no one people... has friends. Try yeah. <laughs> if people don't have friends, that's perfect. Because <laughs> otherwise, you have to institute rules about what their character would or wouldn't know. Um, it'll be even worse if you have like duplicate attendees mm. who play different characters, because of course they will know what they did. Mm. They will know what's happening, and they will try and thwart it, especially if they're playing the first two uh, scenarios. Yeah. To be honest, metagaming could be a whole episode on how to prevent it, on how to not do it. On um, how to just roll with it. Yeah, we can probably yeah. do an episode about that at some point. Yes. If you'd like to see that, then please let us know. Mm-hmm. All right, so group three. Now, the thing about group three is that the stipulation I made is if you're in the Green Hawk, you have to either be a bard or have at least one level in rogue. Right. <laughs> because otherwise, what are you doing in the Thieves' Guild? I know, right? It's the fuck. Get out, yeah? So, um, who do we have? We had either Isaac or Isaac. He spelled it with two S's, and I don't know if that's like an actual name. If that is your actual name, then please do let us know how it's pronounced. I would imagine Isaac, but uh, I've never really seen that that spelling. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, t- t- two S's and one A. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a cleric slash rogue. I believe he had two levels in cleric because the bonuses were better, and one level in rogue. And, of course, he was a cleric of Kive's God of Thieves. Cause, yeah. I mean, technically there are two other gods who the, the Green Hawk would approve of you being a cleric off but if, if you're going to actually be a rogue as well kives is best yeah galen galen was a fighter rogue he was the muscle of the operation oh yeah uh um galen does stuff i don't really believe he did a huge amount that was incredibly important uh ithusa ithusa was a bard and was played by my very good friend maxi ah hi maxi ah. i'm pretty sure that maxi will listen to this at some point um Ithusa, I think, probably is quite important. Mm. I wouldn't say that she took as, as as much of a leadership role as some of the other characters, but she gets involved in a number of striking, if not important, events. Mm-hmm. Drynin. Drynin is an arcane trickster. Mm-hmm. Uh, his play- Drynin's player was Kyle, who actually, personally, is, is one of the most striking players that I have ever had in a game. Dang. Uh, and I think he, he took uh, largely took a, a leadership role. Uh, at least over the the group that he that he had during the, during the game, uh, Mr. Tea Time, <laughs> the assassin. You're probably not going to forget Mr. Tea Time's name. Pay attention to Mr. Tea Time because his story is both incredibly relevant and incredibly hilarious. <laughs> well, then, with a name like Mr. Tea Time, it's a reference to something. I believe at the time I remembered what it was a reference to. And then there was Halard. Halard's player had never played before. He was a thief. Mm-hmm. He generally went around with other people and helped with stealing things. Yeah. So as you do, he, I don't think he believe. I don't really believe he turns up like not in the company of other people. So mm-hmm. I'll mention him when he turns up, but I don't think he's incredibly important to the story. Okay. 
So those are our 18 uh, characters. 18. There are also three more because oh, yeah. three of the players, for three of the characters, were in disguise as other people. Mm. This is the thing. In the garden party, and you folks did this, didn't you? Yes, uh, we put Marion, our rogue, in a big puffy dress, I think. Um, and it made her look fat because it was over her armour. Yes, and um, <laughs> I forget who she was disguised as. Um, uh, she was disguised as a Varesian noblewoman yeah. called Annika Taloka, mm-hmm. uh, which interestingly is a flavour fail on my part because that is a distinctly Russian-sounding name, whereas like Varash is a very Scandinavian-inspired country. Yes. But whatever. So in the original scenario, there are two of those uh, those aliases, but I had to invent at least three because I was like, well, both of the first two groups are going to probably do this and there's only so much a supply of names I can have. So the three aliases are Darius Leberov, Annika Taloka, and Ingvar Rubin. Ingvar Rubin. Yes, he is the, the third one, the new one. So it can be assumed that the first group were entirely successful in their mission. They went through the garden party, they listened to people, they tried to figure out where the shrine was, they encountered some creepy stuff they found out where the shrine was and they destroyed it. And they all got away. I'm telling you right now, they all got away. Nobody was captured by the guards. The guards did turn up. Things did go badly for them at least twice. But everybody got away. 100% success. The second group were also completely successful. They completely thwarted the efforts of the first group. Um, they were not implicable in any crime, so they didn't need to get away. And they incapacitated uh, Sarek who was the member of the first group who actually got to the shrine and was going to destroy it. They also prevented three of the original party members from getting away. So already we've changed the timeline quite a bit. Yeah. Then the Green Hawk turn up. And the interesting thing about this is the Green Hawk, because they're not related to the main plotline at all, I thought, well, this will be the easiest one because I technically don't have to write down what these people are doing. I will anyway, because I'm going to talk about this on my podcast. Um, but it's not for, like, it doesn't have to be 100% accurate for, like, uh, an, another game. And they, they're they just here, well, the reason the Green Hawk come to the garden party is because they know everybody in the house is going to be out in the garden, so yeah. they're like, oh, okay, yeah. we can break into this manor house and steal everything. There's got to be loads of, of valuable stuff there. That's, like, their only goal, and indeed, the metric that the player's success is measured on is the total value of the things that they steal. There's no go and destroy the shrine, there's no assassinate this particular person or get this information, it's just how much shit can you steal? <laughs> and indeed, each of those characters was given a personal bag of holding, which is a bit OP for third level characters, but no, thought, yeah, yeah. otherwise they're going to be like agonising over like how much they can efficiently carry. Yeah. I don't want that, so I'm like, okay, these are like on loan, they don't belong to the characters, but the Green Hawk is like we recognise you're going to find a lot of expensive stuff yeah. in here. Like, oh, so... man. You're going, in, you're going in there? Oh, man. Oh, that's going to be sweet. Do you all want, like, bags of holding so you can put all the shit in the bags of holding and get, like, okay. as much shit as possible? And you're all like, hell yeah! So, let's talk about what happens in the true timeline. Mm-hmm. Shall we? Because it's an entertaining story. Oh, yeah. All right. Some facts before we begin. The garden party is being put on by Lady Saith Aftone, primarily. Her husband and her children are on board, but it's it's her idea. The house itself is a um, colonial-looking manor house at the top of a lawn that slopes down between two walls to 
um, a river to just an open end on the south with a you've seen lawns like this they generally tend to be a bit smaller than the one I was describing but I think they have them a lot in Australia like your lawn just backs out onto a river don't go swimming in it it has alligators in it or whatever no <laughs> crocodiles Australia is crocodiles Florida is alligators they have them in Florida as well and it's just a, it's a bad an idea to go swimming in them yeah um, and the north side of the house is the back of the house and that's that's you're cut off by a wall as well there are two entrances, three entrances. There's one locked one, one servant's entrance, and one main gate in the east wall, which has a street on it. The north wall also has a street, and a number of poorer houses have their gardens backing onto that street. The west wall, there's another house, so you can't get in that way. So, six o'clock in the morning. Drynin and Mr. Tea Time begin a stake out of the house from an opposite rooftop. The... the... The Greenhawk party was given the least amount of information about the house itself mm. and the people who lived there. So obviously they wanted to do like a stakeout right from the beginning before the garden party even started to try and figure out what the best means of entry was and who the key players were. Which was actually very intelligent of them and not something I'd have thought of. So they're just sitting on this rooftop behind some chimneys and they're looking down on like um, on the garden itself and seeing all the preparations being made, which isn't many this early on. At around 8 o'clock, Mr. Tea Time follows a servant he has seen leaving the house three times to the bakery. He doesn't learn anything interesting, but, you know, that was what they wanted to do. At 10 o'clock, Drynin observes Lyburn the butler, and he and Mr. Tea Time return to the rest of the Greenhawk team. Lyburn meets some external security uh, personnel and gives them uniforms so that they will fit in with the rest of the servants of the house. There was a lot of build-up stuff here that I had to do for the Greenhawk team that I didn't have to do for the other two groups. Mm. <clears throat> so I was like, okay, well, how how do we build up to this party actually happening? And it was mainly along the lines of, well, you know, assume that most of the stuff that could be easily tampered with has been prepared beforehand. So, like, most of the food and stuff like that is, is just already in the house, in the pantry or whatever. Because a house that rich would probably be able to accommodate it. Mm. And then just assume that People who get hired are probably going to come in on the day because there's not really any reason for them to like come in earlier. So the security and the band and stuff like that. And that's important because at 11.35, the band arrive. This is where Cora enters the story. All right. The Linalesian group had decided that they didn't want to all go in as like the entourage of Dragax, who was playing Darius Lebarov. Because mm-hmm. they thought six people, only one of whom has any reason to be there that's going to look suspicious. Yeah. So instead, we'll make uh, Sarek break in, because he's the rogue, mm-hmm. and Cora will try and infiltrate uh, as a uh, as a musician, as mm. a soloist. So, you know, some some member of the servants, and that's, that's probably the, the best. Which was fair, you know. Um, I have previously allowed an entire party to come in under the guise of being the entourage of a, a Varazian noble. The general pretext given for this is that because at the time of the scenario, Varash is undergoing a civil war, and indeed that is the reason why the real Darius Lebarov, Annika Taluka, and Ingvar Rubin have not been able to come to the party. Not that their invitation was incredibly urgent, because the Aftones have never actually met any of them, their business contacts. Yeah. It would be assumed that in under those circumstances, having a lot of security detail might be appropriate, because obviously you don't want to get like killed by revolutionaries who followed you, or something like that. It's a bit of a flimsy excuse, but I generally ruled that it would stand up so long as people didn't scrutinise it too much. Yeah. But they won't. No, no. Maximum four to the party, we think. 
So um, Cora is attempting to enter as a soloist. Unfortunately, Ithusa has had the exact same idea. And Ithusa is from the third group. <laughs> Ithusa is the, is the bard from the third group, and, mm-hmm. and uh, she also wants to enter as a soloist. Now, at this point, Ithusa does not know that Cora is not a legitimate, like, invited uh, musician. Mm. Cora also does not know that Ithusa is not a legitimate invited musician. Oh, Mr. Tea Time is coming with Ithusa, by the way, because Mr. Tea Time has disguised himself as a chef. <laughs> The theme that would that would come across with Mr. Tea Time is that uh, Mr. Tea Time's player Mario had had taken very much to heart the assassin's penchant for poisoning, so he was like, "Well, if I can get into the kitchen, then I can poison everybody, and then when they're all like laid out, we'll just be able to like plunder the house, and nobody will be able to stop us." So he's under the pretext of of being this famous chef who's been brought in who hasn't arrived. So they get to the gate at around 11:40. And Lyburn admits Mr. Tea Time immediately. He's like, oh, you're, the, you're the chef. You need to get into the kitchen. Um, you know, come on. No dawdling. You're late already. Um, the existing band's bassist, because this is the thing, right? Um, both Cora and Ithusa thought, oh, they'll just invite a gaggle of musicians. So we'll just, like, tag on to that. Mm. And no, it's like they invite a specific band who all wear the same uniforms and each have a position in the, in the band so they'd be missed. Which I did deliberately, partly because it's plausible and partly because it really messes up the plans of of, uh, of the players, makes them think a little harder. But uh, Cora's like, you know, I, I'm a soloist. I will follow um, guests around the the garden and you know play requests to them. Yeah. And the bassists like, yeah, I mean, you'd have to talk to Lyburn, but yeah, sure, let's do it. Uh, this annoys Ithusa, who had basically the same idea. Yeah. Uh, and now has to admit that she hasn't been invited, that she's not the soloist they've been waiting for, that she really just wanted to come by and see if she could get like an invitation to work here. And the bassist's like, no, we kind of already just have a soloist, so fuck off. <laughs> wow, this bassist's a bit of an ass. So Ithusa is wearing poison gloves, because this is the thing. Like Mr. Tea Time has cooked up a poison that Ithusa has put on her gloves that, you know, metabolizes on contact with skin. Mm. Where it's just like, the original plan was to poison Lyburn the butler, because if he's poisoned, then the entire shebang falls apart, and there's a lot less security detail, or so the Greenhawk believe. Mm. So, Ithusa first <laughs> attempts to poison the bassist, but the bassist is wearing gloves. She then attempts to poison Lyburn, but Lyburn is also wearing gloves, because he's a fucking butler. <laughs> So, desperate for somebody to poison with her poison gloves, she just turns to Cora and is like, hey, no hard feelings, and shakes her hand. So Cora collapses in pain and severe diarrhea and has to be removed. So that suddenly leaves the band without a roving soloist. So they're like, hey, you, you wanted to be, you, you still want to be our soloist? You know? And uh, Ithusa is like, yes, yes, I absolutely will be. She's hurriedly repl- um, hired as a replacement. At 11.50, Sarek vaults the north wall. Now, this is something that in the first game he completely got away with. Like, he breaks into the house in like completely independently from the rest of the group. He does most of the investigation to figure out where the shrine is, and then he leads the rest of the party to it once they all get inside. This is what I mean when I say that Sarek is basically the first game's MVP. He yeah. does most of the work. He has <laughs> some assistance from Johnson, uh, in that they sort of, like, form a, a terrible two. 
and uh, they go around propping each other up, but, but he's doing most of the work from the start. In the third game, things have already gone wrong for him because Drynin has observed him vaulting the north wall and has followed him. At 11.55, Mr. Tea Time arrives in the kitchen and immediately, before doing anything, just looks at this tureen of soup and begins poisoning it. <laughs> he has no idea who that soup is for, where it's going to be on the table, if people are even going to eat it. He just knows that people need to be poisoned with this horrible, like, non-lethal, but, like, severe diarrhea-inducing poison. And he's going to make sure as many people as possible are poisoned with it. Oh, my God. Seriously, Mr. Tea Time is one of the most hilarious characters in the entire game, especially <laughs> when you find out what happens to him next. Uh, Sarek, who originally is supposed to go around the eastern side of the house, like go two windows down, realise that the kitchen is inhabited and he's not going to get past that way, and then come back to go around to the west side of the house, is spooked when he realises that Drynan is following him. Uh, he endeavours to escape. I know that he succeeds. I did not record exactly how he did it. But Drynan decides not to follow him and goes back over the wall to talk to the rest of his uh, of his crew, as it were. Uh, this is where my... Uh, um, collected notes fail. I have to go to the uh, the notes from the third game. So, the next thing that Drynan does is he gets up onto the top of the roof of the house at the back and directs Isaac and Galen in uh, getting in with Halad. I believe there's a rope involved and they get in through a first floor window into the servants' quarters. Right. At a, it is around 12. So, Dragax, in the disguise of uh, Darius Labarov, arrives at the front gate. He has, with him, Grisbane, Johnson, and Thrawn, mm -hmm. who are all his bodyguards or his caravan from Varash, ostensibly. Yeah. So they all come in. They are admitted under this, this assumed name. You know, of course, Lyburn has never met Darius Lebarov, so he's perfectly willing to believe that this human he's never met before is indeed Darius Lebarov. He's heavily armed, but, you know, who coming from Varash wouldn't be? Mm. Whatever, sure. Which, you know, a human disguising as Darius Lebarov is a much better disguise than um, the one Gorax picked from our group. Mm. Just ahead of time. Well, well, it's funny. actually not, and the reason why will, uh, will become evident later. So, uh, yes. So Drynan, Isaac, Galen and Halard are now all in the servants' quarters in the top of the house. They don't find anything valuable there, so they decide that they're going to split out, uh, split up and cover the top floor. They're reasonably certain that no members of the family nor any servants are going to come up here because they're all going to be either out on the garden, out in the garden enjoying the party or coming to and fro between the kitchen and the garden with food. So they should be safe. So, um... What? Uh, huh. In any case, around about this point, uh, Iwona, pretending to be uh, Annika Taloka, arrives. Now, Iwona, um, Iwona is Annika Taloka. Tell, the bard, is playing the part of Ingvar Rubin. Right. So these guys decided that all of them were going to infiltrate the same way, but they were going to split up into two groups of three people, and then that way it would look less suspicious. There would probably come a point where I start propagating this scenario so much that the supply of Varazian nobles the family has never met except through business connections who were surprisingly unable to get away from the fighting in their home country would start to get a bit suspicious. 
but assume that there are a lot of guests. And Marion Athtone, whilst not fond of business, is fond of networking. So, all of these people arrive. So, um, if I can remember the groups, uh, I believe that Iwona... See, I think that one of the groups had Nilpak and Leon, and the other had Olaf and Steve. Mm-hmm. They all they all like spread out over the garden once both groups arrive, so it's not really incredibly important. Like they mm-hmm. don't move around in those groups very much. Uh, Dragax, by comparison, actually moves around with his group a hell of a lot. Like the the three of them tend to stick pretty close to him, while Cora and Sarek do most of the work. Mm-hmm. At least until an important event happens, and I will I will point out the important event because it is interesting. Um, so Grisbane walks across to the drinks table and pours whiskey into his holy flask. (laughs) To this day, I have literally no idea why Grisbane's player did this, because it's the one singularly strangest and most notable event to the players. Like, I believe every subsequent group noticed him doing this, and were like, what? What the hell's going on? But whatever. It's not actually an important event, it's just something that gets noticed by every single player. Mm. Which is why I believe it always happens. Um, Ithusa plays for Dragax. Now, of course, when Ithusa says that she's the soloist, Dragax immediately knows something's gone wrong. Yeah. Because this woman is not Korra. Mm. Like, something has... The funniest thing about Korra is that Korra actually, like, had a very large presence in both the first and the second scenarios. And then, like, in the third one, she doesn't even get to go to yeah. the garden party. Yeah. She's, like, yeah, she's in the bushes shitting herself. That's, well, no, that's... She, she's, like, she, like, carried off to the temple district, like, to the hospital. God dang. <laughs> like, she is it was that bad. <laughs> as soon as she arrives, she is removed from the scene entirely. It's amazing. And I feel kind of sorry for um, Cora's player, because I was like, well, that, that's kind of shit. Yeah. That's, that's not great. But, hey, them's the breaks. So, of course, Dragax immediately knows that something's wrong, but he can't say anything because there's no particular reason why Darius Leverov would know who the soloist is supposed to be. And, indeed, even if he did, he would know that this woman probably has, like, a pretext that she's infiltrated under. Mm. Like, what she's done with Korra is not, like, really something that he's going to get a lot of help with from the servants. But this is the point where it's signaled to Dragax that the plan has gone wrong already. And so... Drynin and Galen are attempting to open a cabinet in the upstairs smoking room. Through a series of incredibly bad rolls, this cabinet falls on them. (laughs) Uh, I believe that not being able to make an acrobatics check, uh, Galen instead opts for an athletics check to, like, just get under the cabinet and, like, hold it up and take some damage, which I allowed. Uh, But it makes a huge amount of noise. This next bit, now, pay attention to this bit, because I maintain this is the most important event in the third timeline. This is the point where everything goes wrong. See, what happened in the first timeline is that Sarek goes in... Sarek finds a way into the house through the servant's exit, which is on the west side of the house. And he does this, you know, when nobody's looking, and then, of course, he immediately turns into the nearest door once he gets in, because he wants to get out of the corridor as quickly as possible, so he turns into this study. Mm-hmm. Now, in all cases, Sarek spends a good 15 minutes look, looking through this study. So he, he finds a cryptic note in it, and uh, he spends a lot of time, like, rifling the drawers in the desk and whatever. Mr. Tea Time goes and attempts to rob 
the room next to the art gallery, which happens to be this study. So he opens the door and he finds a man he has never seen before. And he kills him. <laughs> I'm not joking. As an assassin, he gets... Uh, not even as an assassin, I think all thieves get this. They get, like, um, su- surprise attack, sneak attack. Which means that because Sarek didn't know he was there and didn't expect him... There was a huge amount of damage that Mr. Tea Time could do very suddenly and run round, and he did enough damage to instantly kill the guy. <laughs> oh my god! So, <laughs> this gives you an insight into the character of Mr. Tea Time, that upon finding a man he has never seen before, in the garb of his own profession, he decides to murder him and leave him in a locked room. Oh my god! So yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the other thing. Like that, that I was going to say that that's the most. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what he does next. He leaves the room and locks the door because he has thieves' tools, right? You can just use those to lock a door as well as you can unlock it. Mm. Now that door being locked is the thing that throws a spanner in all of the works because so many temporal thoroughfares run through that door at such an important point that it being locked will completely screw everything. Traps that I put in the garden party include members of the guestery who have met the aliases before and will instantly see through anybody disguised as them. Uh, I believe you guys, um, Marion did meet the woman in question and was only able to BS her that, like, she had extensive plastic surgery or something. (laughs) Basically, you know, like, pretty extensive, to be honest, because... Mm. Marion is well, a human. Yeah, here we go. Um, and Annika called is an orc. So Dragax goes and talks to Mr. Joseph Navybeard, and he's like, well, I'm Darius Leborov. And Joseph Navybeard is like, no, you're not. I've met Darius Leborov. He's taller than you, he's fatter than you, and he's a half-orc. So here we're shown that Mr. Dragax is not incredibly good at lying through his teeth or BSing his way out of a difficult situation, because he immediately breaks down and tells the truth instead, and just <laughs> relies on the persuasion role therein. But somehow he manages it and manages to convince Mr. Joseph Navybeard that, you know, he needs not to be detected because he's doing some important semi-legal work and, you know, it might, might have something to do with the aftones. And he, he tries to convince Joseph to help him, but Joseph is like, well, I'm not going to report you, but I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to think ill of this family I've known for a very long time, so don't come back to me with your results either as to who whose it is. Just leave me out of it and I won't blow your cover. Yeah. Which is the best result they could hope for, really. So anyway, this next event is also important, and this is why I told you that I would remind you about Thrawn when he came up, because this event I found very interesting in that it is never prevented or interfered with in any way. In all three timelines, this event happens. Thrawn, the dragonborn, the uh, black dragonborn with the acid ability, has decided that he is going to basically try and get a tour of the grounds on the pretext of checking the security. So he's gone up to Lyburn, and he's like, can I walk the grounds? And Lyburn's like, well, you're sure as long as you take one of our guys with you. And so Thrawn is like, okay, I've got to try and make some kind of distraction so that people can get into the house. So when they walk around the south side of the garden, Thrawn pushes the servant into the river. (laughs) There's a tremendous splash, and uh, almost all of the guests at this point run down towards uh, towards the garden. This is the point where... I believe that Dragax and Grisbane stay on the lawn because they don't want to look suspicious. But Cora, if she were here, uh, and Johnson would have made an attempt to get into the house at this point. Uh, And indeed, Johnson still does. Mm. But Nilpec and Iwona have had the same idea. 
and Ithusa is now observing all of them attempting to rush into the servant's door, you know, just themselves. Yeah. Just like one after another. This is important. Previously, when this happened in the second group, what happens is that Johnson and uh, Nilpec run together. Initially, of course, Johnson ran on his own. He turned left, and he comes into the study where Sarek is, and then the two of them team up and decide to you know, go around the house looking for this, this shrine. Mm. Second game, Johnson runs in, but he's accompanied by Nilpec, and both of them have sort of, like, talked to each other and made their BS excuses to each other in a kind of, we both know that neither of us are who we say we are, but it's kind of awkward to admit that because mm-hmm. it's a, a weakness on either of our part. So... We're just going to pretend that this is normal kind of deal. Mm. So they come in, and then they find at the other end of the corridor, there is Tell, who has managed to convince Lady Saith into giving him a tour of the house. Because, of course, Tell wants to know where the shrine is, and he thinks if he can get a tour of the house, he might be able to detect it. Yeah. So there's Tell, there's Lady Saith, and there's Lady Saith's friend, Lestiel Maven. And all of them are looking down the corridor at Johnson and Nilpec. So in the second scenario, what Johnson does is he panics. He turns immediately sideways across Nilpec, opens the door, Sarek comes out of the door, hits Nilpec on the head with a kosh, and then Nilpec and Johnson bundle Sarek's body into the study, close and lock the door. That was weird. Mm-hmm. In the second group. Of course, that's not going to happen now, because Sarek is dead and the door is locked. <laughs> yeah. So Johnson attempts to push across Nilpec to open the door, finds that the door is locked... And then everybody just sort of stares at everybody else <laughs> for a little bit. Ithusa decides that she needs to distract everybody. And at this point, Gail Athtone runs past everybody up this corridor through the servant's entrance into the library. This is another point where I fucked up, and I only realised afterwards. Like, originally, this scene was incredibly important. It's what Sarek and Johnson do next, because they observe her running up the empty corridor. And they're like, we need to follow her and find out what's going on. And they go into the library and they find out that she's disappeared. And they eventually find the uh, secret entrance into... Uh, you experienced this part of the scenario. Do you want to say... Uh... There is a secret entrance in the library. Um, you go down and Gail is there. Um, I was quite fortunate being... We were both aware spiders. So I just sort of just comforted her. that in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were both aware spiders. I comforted her. I was like... And, and eh. why was Jay a aware spider? Because... Gail, like, attacked me when we were walking in the marsh one time and bit me. It's entirely Gail's fault that Jay's a horrible abomination of nature. But Jay's... No, don't... It's not a big deal. Jay doesn't mind that much. Gail, you know, comforts Gail. Um, and is basically like, stay down here. I'll stop the temple okay. of, you know... I'll protect so, you, basically. So the long and the short of it is, the shrine is Gail's. Mm. Gail has built the shrine because she was told by a friend that, you know, worship of a uh, private worship of Vesasark might help with her wear spiderism. So, you know, in, in game one, Sarek and Johnson go down into this dungeon and they find out from Gail where the shrine is and then they quickly escape before Gail turns into a horrifying wear spider because that's the reason she's run down to the dungeon. She's having basically an anxiety attack that's going to provoke a transformation. Mm. This is where I fucked up, and I'll say this right here, right now. The f- the thing that I did wrong is that I didn't... I-, I wrote down what people did, but I didn't write down why they were doing it. And that's my problem, because Sarek gaining this information is crucially important to the completion of the mission. Otherwise, neither he nor Johnson know where the shrine is. 
and in both subsequent scenarios i had them just sort of like magically know where the shrine was because my idea was that if a player character was diverted from their task as long as they were able to they would try and like get back on the the like road they were on before yeah of events even if they now had absolutely no reason to do that but whatever so in any case that's not going to happen now um nobody goes to see where gale is every everybody hears the screech of gale turning into a spider down below but nobody knows where it is except her family so leon has the ability to turn invisible because leon is a wizard so at this point uh johnson and this is where i said that johnson is not wholly irrelevant like i'm like damn how can i make the normal plot work the way it did before sarik is dead so i'm <laughs> yeah. like well okay johnson is probably the next most relevant character to that particular sequence of events so i'm going to have johnson try and go upstairs to find the shrine in the attic now in the second session leon turned invisible and went up into the attic after sarek and was able to incapacitate him at least partially so i'm like okay leon was probably the most complicated uh, competent there so leon is the foil so leon's invisible and pushes past halard who is in like the loft room because there's this room with like just the loft uh, the loft door in it and a ladder and nothing else. Halad is creeped out and he's like, oh, I don't I don't want anything more to do with that room because an invisible thing pushed past me. That was creepy. So he goes back to the rest of the of the thieves. Like all of the thieves basically except uh, Mr. Tea Time and Ithusa are just going around the top floor of the house robbing shit. Yeah. They were incredibly effective about this. Like basically most of the people who came up into the top floor of the house weren't looking for people burgling stuff so they were able to get away with a huge amount of loot. i think in total they came around with four thousand golds worth of loot which was not as much as they could have got but it's still very respectable respect up yeah respect if, if any people from the third group have found this podcast and are listening to it oh i know a lot of them have. well done well oh, done yeah there's <laughs> at least two of them subscribed right now three of them in fact hi guys four of them so yeah that's that. Um, ooh. I ent- entirely missed one of the most important events. Uh, I just passed over the note. So around that time that Ithusa observed everybody rushing into the servant's entrance, Mr. Tea Time makes a very foolish decision. Mr. Tea Time has decided that he doesn't like the servants hanging around. He thinks it's all very well poisoning the guests with that one tureen of soup that nobody ate. But... The servants are the ones who are going in and out of the house and being busybodies, so it's as well to get rid of the servants. Mr. Tea Time. So so Mr. Tea Time decides to make up some food for the guards, and he tries to, you know, poison this food and give it to the guards, Uh, but the servants are like, well, the guards are getting fed later, and, like, Mr. Afton was pretty clear about not letting them eat on the job. And so Mr. Tea Time is like, oh, right, I can't arouse suspicion. Why don't you folks have this food? We've finished putting stuff out, so it's it's lunchtime. And he's, he has much more success in making them do that, but then he thinks, well, hang on, if I'm not seen to eat this food, then it will be <laughs> suspicious, because I'm the only one not eating it, and I'm the only one not getting sick. So I'd better be seen to eat some. And, and this is where his player is like, well, you know, I'm, I'm an assassin, I'm a poisoner, so obviously I've built up an extreme resistance to my own poison. And he eats the food, and I'm like, no! Roll a constitution save! <laughs> Why well, the hell would you think that? Well well done, Alex. Stick it out there for every DM who's had to deal with Dread Pirates Robert, Robert's bullshit. Yeah, I'm like, well, 
being a poisoner though just means you know a lot about poisons yeah so you know what is a poison and what not to eat it doesn't mean that you've built up a resistance to your like you can't even do that with most poisons like didn't it take caligula like 20 years to do it with one poison yeah i think so this, I, I can't and, remember if that was know, caligula. maybe caligula, it was nero caligula famously was like as mad as a box of rabbits hats yeah frogs Frogs, thank you. One of, one of those things. <laughs> All of those things. So, yeah, he's, he's poisoned himself. And the thing is, uh, Mr. Tea Time is a gnome. So, yeah, yeah. And he's taken a human dose of poison. Yeah. So I'm like, this could kill you. You could literally shit yourself to death. <laughs> and I'm just going to spoil it for you now. Mr. Tea Time spends the rest of the session making constitution saves not to shit himself to death. That is pretty much all he does. There's one thing <laughs> that I got reminded about. Um, everybody's sta- sitting stunned in the standing stunned in the the hall. Mr. Tea Time crawls along the floor, going help me, <laughs> right up to Nilpeck, who is of course a cleric, and he's like help me. And Nilpeck heals him for like six hit points. That is pretty much the only relevant thing that then occurs to Mr. Tea Time. I'm sorry, he's removed from the story at this point. So. I can't even. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. Continue. You okay? All right. Yeah, I'm okay. So, where have we got everyone right now? Mo- a lot of people are out on the lawn. There are a lot of people just sort of standing motionless on the ground floor. Um, Leon is up in the loft, and Johnson is going there. Halad, Drynin, Isaac, Galen, and Ithusa, who has come up, are now all in the upper floor, and they're ransacking it. So, then what happens is, Ithusa is like, we can't go back for Mr. Tea Time. It's not going to happen. Everything's kind of weird now. We have to take all of this loot and just escape. So, they're going to leave Mr. Tea Time for dead. (laughs) Because they can't go downstairs. At this point, Johnson has gone upstairs into the loft, and Leon and Johnson are having a a, a showdown, if you like, Mm. about the shrine, which is also up there, because obviously Sarek is dead, so he's not going to, you know, be the final boss. So they're having an argument, and um, I allow the the Greenhawk players to hear this argument as as they're leaving, because I think it's amusing, where, like, they're just saying, you know, uh, Leon's like, well, you've lost your thief, and your thief was your wild card. You're nothing without them. And Johnson is like, you know, there's like a third group of people here, right? I have no idea who they are or what they want. And Leon's like, yes, I know. It's weird. Let's not dwell on it. (laughs) It is about around this time that the trump card happens. This is something that I also pulled when you guys played the scenario. Um, It's something that I always think I don't want to pull because it does kind of like throw a spanner into all of the works when one might not necessarily need to be there but it was still in the continuity because of course everything went pretty smoothly in the first session yeah the real darius Leborov arrives this is by the way after things have already gone horribly wrong like there's a servant being pulled out of the the river <laughs> the whole load of people in the house who shouldn't be uh, as soon as people get past that locked door they're gonna find there's a dead guy in there yeah but Mr. the real darius just Leborov... surrounded in a sea of his own feces probably yes or at least uh, is wearing a, uh, a nappy of it. <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but Mr. Tea Time is like in serious danger of dying of dehydration. Oh, at yeah. the moment. 
Like it's it's no joke. So by the way, Mr. T Times player plays in my Tuesday game, and he like the the running joke is his characters die incredibly frequently. Like that was the only reason I was harping on this. I might have let him off otherwise, but I'm like this will be funny. And no, honestly, one of his characters died during an extenuated series of events from my attempts as a DM specifically to kill off another character who wasn't him. <laughs> like, I tried to kill one character and Mario's character dies instead. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> and that other character is still not dead, by the way. I mean, I have changed my reasons for wanting to get rid of him, so I got rid of him by making him disappear instead because I have to talk to the player and stuff. You know. I tend to be kind of sympathetic to players who tell me exactly why they haven't been attending sessions if there's like a decent reason that I can relate to and in this case there was so I was like okay I'm not going to be an asshole kill off the character but no like his character dies instead he was murdered by a member of uh, he almost killed himself once and indeed this is the second time that that has nearly happened neither character has died interesting enough from that specific instance the the first character he did it with did eventually die later so Anyway, back to Dar- Darius Labarov has shown up. Right, so Darius Labarov has shown up, um, and having had a description of him from Joseph Navy Beard, Dragax immediately knows who this is. He's like, and of course, Lyburn announcing it doesn't hurt. He's like, um, Mr. Darius Labarov? Uh oh. So this is the bit where um, Dragax and Grisbane just split. Uh, I believe Cora would as well, but of course, she's not here. Yeah. But I believe originally she does. And that, that's part of the, the way in which everybody gets away originally. Um, so they just like hop over the wall and are gone. Because they're like, we're not sitting around to see this. The guard are called. At this point, most of the Green Hawk is amassing in the servants' quarters and comparing their notes about the, the things that they stole. And they're preparing to like get out of a window and get out of the wall and get away. They're done. They have got what they came for. They yep. ransacked the whole top floor of the house. It's been made clear to them that ransacking the bottom floor of the house isn't going to happen at this point, so they're taking what they've got and they're going to go. So they start pushing a a rope out of the window. Guards start filing in to the garden, and Thrawn, the dragonborn, decides that he is going to fight them. (laughs) He did this in... He did this actually as a player, like his player did this, and um, he managed to kill at least one of them, but eventually it's becoming clear that too many... uh, Guards are filing in through this tiny gate. He's not going to be able to hold them off forever. It's just him, and the guests are starting to turn on him as well. There's other security personnel. It's not looking good. So he jumps into the river, takes three arrow shots, and swims away. That is also, like, I believe in the second game, Iwona tried to stop him by draining the river magically, but she was too far away. He always gets away. Mm. So he's fine. So Mr. Tea Time crawls out onto the lawn, and he's just like... <laughs> and there's this uh, this this did Timmy fall down the well again sequence where the guard tries to figure out what he wants and won't let him back into the house and Mr. Tea Time wants to get back into the house because he's like if I can get to the kitchen I can make an antidote to the poison and the guard's like I don't think that's a good idea sir the house is on, on, on lockdown do you need some help and eventually he does convince the guard to like have somebody take him to the temple district so that he can be healed so Mr. Tea Time survives Good. I'm going to be clear about that. Mr. Tea Time does survive, <laughs> and I believe he got like one item worth 250 gold to add to the pile, so all went well. <laughs> Johnson and Leon, I believe Johnson gets arrested. 
Right. Originally, what happened is that Johnson actually gets charmed by Leon, so maybe that happened as well. We don't actually go into that in the third uh, session because obviously the the Greenhawk are all away by the time that that gets resolved. But in the second session, what happens is that the Lionelesians get arrested, and the you know the uh, Vesasians are like, well. We didn't technically do a huge amount wrong, which is not technically true. No. But because they caught these people, like you know, breaking into with intent to cause criminal damage, they're like, well, we're going to swing it this way. Yeah. So, the Lionelesians ended their game by all getting away. The Vesasians are like, well, we're just going to stay here and wait for the guards to come. Yeah. So it can be presumed that when not impeded in that task, that's what they do. Yeah. So, <sighs> the thing that that amazed me is that that would have played out almost exactly the same as the second game in terms of what already existed in the narrative were it not for the fact that Mr. Tea Time came across a man he had never seen before in a room killed him and locked the door it was that door being locked that completely threw everything off because of course Johnson can't go into that door now because it's locked so the entire sequence of events that comes from Johnson kidnapping Nilpec and then like escaping around the the, uh, the loop of the house and then up the stairs that's never going to happen because he can't get in. And more to the point, he doesn't know that Sarek is dead because he can't open the door. Mm. Heaven knows what happens when they eventually find Sarek's body. Oh, yeah. Man. So I found it hilarious that, of course, three, three of the original group were rendered completely impotent by, like members of the Green Hawk Party who had no idea who they were or that, until after the game, they were even player characters. Like, Ithusa poisons Korra because she needs to get in. She doesn't know that Korra is a player character who is trying to do the exact same thing that she is doing. And Mr. Tea Time, I mean, maybe he had a suspicion that this person was a player character because he was doing something weird and out of the ordinary that didn't seem to be directly related to the shrine, so probably a play character, but he just murdered him. And, oh, right, that's the end of Sarek. That means that half of the Lionelesian plot doesn't work, because Sarek was the driving force behind it. And he locks the door, which means that Johnson, who I had come into the habit of, like, backing up Sarek's role and just sort of, like, okay, if Sarek's dead, continue with Johnson. Johnson can't do anything, because the door's locked. It was amazing. So... So, what conclusion do you draw from the QCon experiment? That this is way harder than I thought it would be. And this is evidenced by the fact that I did, in fact, make a small number of mistakes. And I will admit to those. Um, the first one is that at the end of the second game, uh, Tell attempts to put Sarek to sleep. He, in fact, rolls exactly the amount needed to equal Sarek's hit, hit points, which is what you need in 5th edition, to send him to sleep. Sarek is an elf. Elves can't be put to sleep with magic. Mm. Oh, now, yeah, they can't, can't they? Technically, this isn't incredibly important because immediately after that, Nilpec just like slammed a fuckload of radiant damage into Sarek and brought him down to like 3 HP. So were he conscious, Sarek would probably have surrendered because, you know, otherwise he's going to die. I don't know, maybe he wouldn't. I would have had to talk to his player to be sure, but um, I, I think he probably would have known that the game was up at that point. At least they would have gone to combat and he would have got his ass kicked because there was like one of him and at least four of them. Yeah. The second... Uh, mistake that I made if I can think of it. Oh, of course, it's the one that I explained already. Um, Sarek and Johnson magically knowing that the shrine was in the attic, even when they were prevented from meeting Gail Athtone, who basically told them that. That was... That's originally a pretty major issue, but it's traceable back to an error in like the way that I was recording the game. Because I'm like, I would have known to 
fix that if I had been recording why people were doing something as well as what they were doing. But it was already difficult enough to actually record like what they were doing. I think if I did it again, what I might do is just like get everyone's consent before the session began and just record it so that I could listen back to the recording if there was anything I was unsure of. And then I could write up a detailed, like... Uh... But then, of course, I would have to do it over a more extended period of time, because as it was, I was having to print off character sheets and make up pre-gens and maps and stuff. Yeah. Very, very late into the night on each day of the con. So, um, partly because I'm lazy and I never get stuff done in time, but also because it was kind of difficult to predict what I would need until the day that a session actually was on. So I think I could definitely be more organized if I did it again. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, you can propagate that second mistake out to a lot of things, like um, how does Leon know to go up to the attic if Sarek is dead and Johnson is not going up there until later? That would be one of the things. And also, there was actually no soloist position, so the pretext that Cora gets herself in on specifically to deny Ithusa is complete bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> but well, there's always a certain amount of creative license that you want to take to make a challenge interesting for a player. Yeah. Um, so I thought, okay, if Cora's pretext is going to work anyway, that means that Ithusa has to get creative. Which was really what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to say that I wanted this to be a perfect representation of what would have happened if the timeline were changed that way. Like, no, that's, that's not going to happen. And honestly, I don't think it would be good for it to happen because it means that, like, you have to make these very sharp changes between being incredibly analytical and making shit up which happened anyway but it's like well i have to stick exactly to what these characters did up until they're interfered with and then i have to just like make up as much as i can to keep the plot going like that's not that's not going to work you, you, you can't unless you're prepared to take some creative license with what the characters are doing and what the important events are mm. that's not going to work um thirdly i don't know if visual aids might have helped I suppose they might have done. It would have helped to keep track of like certain characters. But the problem is, like, um, the second two groups aren't really supposed to know who like the groups preceding them are until they figure it out themselves. Which means that I would have to have like representations of every single guest at the party, which is ridiculous. Yeah. You can't do that because either it's going to be way too few and it's easy to tell who's who, or it's way too many and there's a chance that the players will come across all like go and talk to all of them and I only have like. 15 of them mapped out mm. it's just not practical so yeah. maybe i wouldn't do that but i think maybe some visual aid for the dm to just like help pay attention to who's where might yeah help. yeah uh i don't know i need a better map of the house to do that all in all i think the qcon experiment went off amazingly yeah i thought um it came together pretty much exactly the way as I was, I was expecting it to but i wasn't really prepared for how interesting that was going to be it's uh it was very amusing. Most of the players told me that they, in fact, had a really good time, so uh, I was really happy about that. Some said that they didn't really know what to expect. Um, they were kind of like, they thought that there would be more like mechanical stuff and combat. And I was like, well, it's not really that kind of scenario, but in, in all of those cases, the players were like, well, yeah, we kind of figured that out, and it's fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. You know, we, we still had fun, so, so that was good. Yeah, I mean, that that is one thing that made the garden party really fun, is that it wasn't just fighting and, you know, stuff like that, that it was more about your guile and wit and how quick you were and how zippy you could come up with responses to people who were calling you out on your bullshit. Um, I, kind of, I kind of like doing that because, I mean, not to knock the traditional play style at all, but there's something that bothered me a lot in, like, original D&D and AD&D is that charisma is always a dump stat. Yeah. Because if you're dungeoneering, you don't generally need 
from charisma anything that you couldn't also get just by like attacking or intimidating the people who you need stuff from yeah or pickpocketing them or something like that mm. and, it's, and it's like well okay i mean that's cool but let's throw these characters into some social like some social situation give them a reason to be there and see how they handle something where they basically can't go around just like attacking people to get information out of them mm. or to get like uh, stuff out of them mm. you can't just kill the people but it's an option if everything goes to shit so it's kind of like um good stealth sections in games yeah um, i've been playing a lot of uh the old blood recently the uh, the wolfenstein new order standalone expansion i really really love how that particular family of games handles stealth in that you're not really built for it you can do it and but like at any point if it goes wrong like that's not the end of it or anything you just stand up and you have to prepare for a fight yeah and you can win like that's entirely possible it's also the kind of thing like um in games like dishonored where if you get detected okay that is the end of it but but you can get away. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I I like the garden party as well. I think the garden party is one of the best things I've ever written because there's a use for every character in a party, mm-hmm. but it emphasizes the characters who are able to employ the arts of deception. Yeah. And also because, as shown here, players come up with a lot of different approaches to it. Yeah. Like, like, if you're not particularly charismatic, I don't know much about the barbarian, assuming charisma wasn't as high a score. Charisma could, was not, no. no. You can just push a servant into the river. You can. And also, like, because the, the pretext of coming in as, like, the, the bodyguards of this yeah. important person is there for you, you can get into the party and start doing your thing. Yeah. That's entirely possible. I really, really liked how the first group decided to diversify their options so much. They're like, we're going to have one person come in as a, as a servant. So she's completely unrelated to the rest of us, and she's not. There's no connection drawn to her. And we're going to have, you know, four people uh, come in as this entourage, and then we're going to have just one person break in. Yeah. And then we we we've co- we're covering all our bases. Mm. And how the second group were like, well, we're going to go all in on the um, the entourage thing, but we're going to have two groups, mm. so we can work with each other, and it will be difficult to tell like who's missing, because there's two people we have to orbit around and stuff like that. And neither of those were really approaches that I'd thought of. Mm. I mean, the idea of like having two members of the party be like nobles is something that there is support for in the original scenario. But I hadn't thought of like deliberately splitting up the party between the two of them so that you're less noticeable. And indeed, I loved how the Green Hawk party interacted with a collection of events they knew pretty much nothing about. Oh, yeah. Like, they did not know going in who was and wasn't an NPC. Like, the Vestasians didn't know either, but they knew that there was an opposing party who were yeah. like who they were supposed to be working against. So it was up to them to identify who this opposing party were and thwart their attempts. Whereas the Green Hawk guys, they have no idea. They're like, yeah. well, we're going to get in. There's going to be a whole load of NPCs. I mean, I told them the, the premise beforehand, but they didn't really, like, engage with, with that either. They were just, we're going to get in, we're going to steal everything, we're going to get out. And we're going to go in this number of different ways. I would never have predicted Mr. Tea Time being the chef. I didn't honestly think much about that pre-gen when I wrote it as an assassin. It was just, well, I already have to make a bard and two, like, multi-classes, so let's go with all three kinds of rogue. Yeah. Just so that there's a diversity of, like, what the rogues can actually do. And, yeah, I think the experiment went really, really well. I'm very glad that I did it. I'm probably going to do something for QCon next year. I've no idea what yet. Um, yeah. If anybody has any suggestions for a fun and esoteric game concept that I could possibly do at next year's QCon, um, 
I will have more time to prepare then because I won't be working. I won't be in placement year anymore. So, you know, hit me with that. Um, it'll be the end of exams. It should be the end of exams. So I will definitely probably have that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, yes? If anything, I've learned from the QCon experiment, your QCon experiment, it's do not poison yourself with the human dosage of poison if you are a norm. Uh, that is a really bad idea. <laughs> I would suggest not poisoning yourself with a human dosage of poison anyway. Any, yeah, anywhere. Even but... if you are a human, it's a human dosage of poison. So you're not going to have a fun time. No, but even don't... Even if you won't be in danger of dying. Don't... But especially if you're a norm, you know, don't... Yeah. Especially if you made the poison and yeah. you know it's poison. That's just... <laughs> yeah. It's not a huge amount of defensibility for you there. Um... Another thing that I did point out immediately after the fact is because this is about layering stuff on top of other stuff, like, temporarily, it does unfortunately lay down some fundamental rules for time travel in Dawn Somber. And that's a can of worms I don't feel good about opening up just yet, but it means that they're there. And I did remark to somebody else that, like, I could have gone with anything. I could have had, like, Doctor Who rules, which is horrifying all the time and very very different depending on who's writing and what series it is mm. um or i could have had like uh dirk gently rules which are the best rules for time travel because dirk gently rules don't give a fuck uh no no i've gone for brack show rules which is the worst set of rules <laughs> why why would you pick brack show rules why would you continue layering paradoxes on top of each other until they all collapse? <laughs> I think eventually, if time travel does make its way into Dawn Somber, I will eventually like um, just sort of like edge it into Dirk Gently rules. Yeah. Because I think when you're dealing with a game where anything can happen and like your players possess the ability to end the universe if you make time travel, like if you make time paradoxes <laughs> meaningful, uh, we'll go for Dirk Gently rules. We might go for Magic the Gathering rules instead. Uh, which would be interesting, but I think we'll eventually end up going for Dirk Gently rules because they're just the most forgiving and the least likely to end the universe because Silas decided to do something that would destroy all of time and space. Yeah, and it would be Silas. It would be Silas. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be adding time travel to my setting that soon, although I might add time skips for um, one-shots because I would like to see like Dawn Sombra in its Industrial Revolution and maybe like alternate universes for like dawn somber when something catastrophic has happened but those are i think questions for another day mm-hmm. um i think that's it honestly. i think that's it um i think next episode we'll probably talk about villains i think that's probably the best one to talk about because we have received a, a request for that episode i think we've received two requests actually although it might be two requests from one person but i count that's two that's well, that's very good. Um, but I think that is that that I'm pretty happy with with planning that to be the uh, the next podcast in the sequence. All just right. To give people a bit of a uh, bit of you know a bit, 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 bit of uh, warning. But that's, yeah. That's what we're gonna have. So, uh, yeah. The uh, this has been House of Bards. Uh, your hosts have been Alex and Beth. The uh, music was by Kevin McLeod. And the cover art beneath the titles was by Philip Leslie Hale, which I am telling you anyway, even though it's in the public domain now. Aren't I nice? It's a picture of a garden party. It is. Entirely the wrong, like, era, but I don't care. Yeah. Um, if you want to contact us, you can contact us on Twitter using the hashtag House of Bards. Um, I'm Baroness Bamf on Tumblr and on Twitter, and 
Alex's Cleaver Crumbish on Twitter and Tumblr as well. That's C L E Crumbish. Clever Crumbish, but we pronounce well, it Cleaver. Well, yeah, you, you, you can have Clever Crumbish as well if yeah. the concept of a crumb of like bread or something is completely alien to you. Yeah, and it appears to be to a lot of people. <laughs> Not entirely sure what's going on there. No. Ah. Um. But that is what we. Yeah, that is where we are. If you make us anything or you have any feedback, send it to us there. We absolutely do love your feedback. It provides a lot of direction to the podcast that we otherwise have to do for ourselves. So it's it's always good to hear requests about what people want to hear about. Yeah. I yep. think that's uh, yeah that that's us. So yep. that, those names again, you can find them in the description. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am Cleaver Crumish, and she is Baroness Banff. Mm-hmm. We hope you've enjoyed listening to us, and we'll see you next week. Yes, see you next week. Forgot what that garden party actually reminded me of when we first played it, but it's the the masquerade party in Dishonored was like really in my mind when we did that because that's a really fun bit of that game actually. But better because it has a hundred percent less handing over wealthy heiresses to rapists who will keep them locked up in. That's also true. Yeah, that is a really creepy bit. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, I actually did that, and then like he was he was like uh, I'll make sure to keep her safe and started pushing the boat off and I was like wait shit <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> what oh, have wait, I done shit. <laughs> what have I done